Yep, Cecil, you got it right. Cecil. Okay. Yep. Um, and the topic uh, chosen for tonight is certainly one that is um, uh, interesting to all. Um, and I would say probably interesting to the entire world. So thank you so much, Guy, for being here. Thanks. For um, choosing the topic. Um, so a little bit about the common good. Uh, the common good was founded in 2007. It's a non-profit, non-partisan membership organization. organization. Its members are professionals who are interested in public policy. Its mission is to help to bridge growing divisions that threaten our nation. It encourages the importance of citizen participation in our democracy. The Common Good is dedicated to a vibrant public square of reasonable discourse and the free exchange of ideas. It brings thoughtful leaders, innovators, innovators and trendsetters in politics, business, and culture to discuss the most pressing issues of the day, and there are many of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to thank Patricia Duff for founding the Good and for her role as an activist as well. So, thank you, Patricia. I'm going to hand this over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, is this an unbelievably beautiful place? Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, so, thank you so much for opening your absolutely fabulous home, your little pied-à-terre in New York. Um, for this group. Yeah. Of all of us. <laughs> um, so for some of you who are new to the common good, we try to uphold and promote the best of democratic values. And of course, that starts with citizen engagement and the vote. And most of our members are um, interested in public policy and are philanthropists or activists already. Um, so we really are uh, very happy to have uh, so many really dedicated people here, committed to various causes, particularly the meals. So I want to thank Karen and Dennis, who couldn't be with us tonight, because they have supported and do support so many um, important political causes, um, patriotic millionaires, um, RFK uh, Memorial, and a lot of uh, very, very important um, organizations. And now before we get started, I do want to just give a shout out. Um, we have Carl McCall here. Um, Carl was our state controller. He ran for governor. He's a, um, a, one of our most distinguished New Yorkers. Carl, do you mind standing? <laughs> and of course, as we do uh, these days, since the press is under attack, we, um, we like to give a shout out to people in the media who every day are um, doing what the Constitution says are in our Bill of Rights at the top of the First Amendment. People like Susan Del Percio. Thank you. <laughs> Joanna Coles. You're here, so happy to have you. She uh, introduced Reese Pyatt for us last year at our court. Judith Miller. Yay. 
Um, so we're really, really happy to have you all here, and we're really excited. I had heard, of course, I know Guy Cecil for a number of years. He did an extraordinary job at the DSCC, and he is just an amazing strategist. Um, and I saw him and heard him do this. Oh, gosh, I forgot to mention Joe. You're right here in front. Joe Connison is doing investigative <laughs> work. Thank you so much for your reporting, too. Um, Guy is um, it really is doing important work talking about the issues that will be the winning issues um, in 2020. He has really dug deep into what happened in 2018, and I think you're going to find this very, very enlightening. So please give a very, very common good welcome to Guy Cecil. Thank you. Thank you, Celia. Well, first, thank you to Karen for hosting us and for Patricia for inviting me. We're going to talk a little bit about politics, uh, since it seems to be the topic of conversation uh, for a lot of folks. But I wanted to start uh, on a different note and explain uh, how I got here and why I got here. Um, my career actually didn't start in politics. It started as a, a minister in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, and there aren't many uh, democratic operatives uh, that started their career as a minister in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, but I, I ended up in both the ministry and in politics for the very same reason. And that is that um, my, my grandmother, who was uh, born in Columbus, Ohio, and who was orphaned at two years old and adopted by what could generously be called a distant set of parents, uh, lived one of the most challenging lives anyone could imagine. Uh, she uh, married her first love, who turned out to be in uh, direct talk a monster. Um, in the first uh, attempt at domestic violence, my, uh, the person that my grandmother was married to stabbed my grandmother 12 times with a butcher knife, and uh, he got three months in jail. And upon his exit, he uh, tried to reconcile with my grandmother, and when she didn't, he tried to shoot her. And the gun locked, and so he pistol whipped her and returned to jail for six months. And uh, my grandmother went into hiding with my two-year-old mom and her four brothers and sisters. And upon getting out of jail, my uh, grandfather found my grandmother and in front of her five kids shot her twice um, before killing himself. And my grandmother survived all of this. And, uh, decided she had had enough of Columbus, Ohio. No offense to Columbus. Uh, and so she packed her five kids up in a station wagon and drove from Columbus to uh, Miami, Florida. And I'm, I'm grateful that she drove to Miami. It was a pretty great place to grow up. And on the way, uh, during the long drive, they stopped at a gas station and my mom uh, got out. She was a couple years old and she was running into the gas station to go to the bathroom and my grandmother was loading up the car with gas and my mom ran out crying and my grandmother went in to inspect why. And there was a large man uh, standing in front of a bathroom, marked colored, 
And the man proceeded to instruct my grandmother that there was no way this child was going into the colored bathroom. And that he apologized, but the white bathroom was broken. And my grandmother informed this man that she was sorry because her daughter was going into the bathroom where she needed to use. And she proceeded to. And that pretty much started the change in my grandmother's life, who uh, lived in poverty. Um, it was not a euphemistic living paycheck to paycheck. She was poor. Uh, she lived in a series of trailers and duplexes. She raised five children. She loved the Boston Celtics, uh, the Miami Dolphins, and bourbon, uh, not in that order. And she was the kindest, uh, strongest person I have ever met. Uh, and I didn't know any of these stories until after she died and she had gifted me a box that contained her varsity letter when she was on the first Ohio State Championship full court women's basketball team as the center. It included the pendant she won as part of the championship because men got rings and girls got necklaces. And the family Bible which contained the front page story from the Columbus Post-Dispatch about her attempted murder. My parents did marginally better economically than my grandmother. My dad is a boat mechanic. My mom was a waitress. They were raising two boys and had just had the third, my youngest brother. And two months after he was born, my youngest brother was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, which at the time had a very low success rate. Um, Remarkably, my brother not only survived, he has two kids today. Um, and by every measure, we were blessed with a miracle. Except that a couple of weeks after my brother was diagnosed, my father was fired from his job. No union, no Obamacare, no portability, no pre-existing condition protections. And that basically sent my parents spiraling into a same circle of poverty raising three kids, trying to do what they could to balance the light bill and the mortgage. And eventually we ended up by the good graces of a very caring community in a subsidized trailer on the grounds of a little league baseball team. And in exchange for free rent, my dad would come home from his new job and he would clean the toilets and line the fields and open the concession stand and referee the games and mow the fields and do everything he needed to to take care of our two-bedroom single-wide trailer. And my parents wanted to make sure that their boys had a normal environment to grow up in and so they gave us the two rooms and they slept on the couch. I have done better economically than my parents. I have 32 cousins. Two of us went to college, seven of us went to jail. Um, but going to college was always presumed. It was always assumed that we were going to college despite a lack of awareness about it. My parents just assumed it would happen and provided all the support they could to make it happen. And um, so I, I've done better than my parents from an economic point of view. But my parents were never, not once, worried about holding each other's hands the way that I was worried about holding the hand of my first boyfriend. My parents were never worried about um, losing their job. And the reason I left my first job as a Southern Baptist minister is because I realized that I was gay and I knew these two things were not compatible. So I became a, a Methodist. 
um, which is having its own problems right now, but <laughs> that's, for another, that's for another common good uh, discussion. Um, um, my husband and I uh, have uh, nine nieces and nephews. Seven happen to be white, two happen to be black. We love all of our nieces and nephews, and we spoil them like two double-income gay couple with no children should. Um, but it would be foolish and a lie to say that we don't worry about Jalen and Travis in ways that are fundamentally different than we worry about their seven white cousins. We love them the same. We worry about them in different ways. And we're going to talk a lot about politics in the, the micro sense, and we're going to talk a lot about issues from the micro sense, and we're going to talk about digital communication and all of these other things. But at the core of it, for those of us that are progressives or Democrats or however you wish to describe those of us on the left, uh, my fundamental belief is that our success as a party is not based on, and our success as a country, frankly, is not based on whether we have a strategy that reaches out to the white working class or whether we choose to communicate with a new emerging majority of young people and people of color. That our success as a party and as a country depends on our capacity to do both while still holding firm to a core set of convictions. That at the end of the day, I want a party and a country that speaks to and is worthy of my grandmother and all the other working women that take care of their kids and face what appear to be insurmountable odds and do it with hope and forward-lookingness and strength. I want a country that can take care of and make sure that we can take care of every child with quality health care, regardless of whether they live on the Upper West Side or they live in a trailer on a ball field in Miami, Florida. And I want a country that says that every person, whether they are gay, straight, bisexual, trans, queer, questioning, wherever you fall on the spectrum, or whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Pacific Islander, that everybody deserves a fair shot. And that our success is not just dependent upon whether or not we have the most money raised and the best campaign tactics and whether or not we're running against someone that seems like they should be disqualified on their face from being president of the United States, for example. Um, our, our success will be whether or not we can communicate that vision. And so I wanted to start there because I think it's important that you understand that the approach that we take at Priorities, which is the organization I happen to lead, is based on that fundamental principle. That, that our job is, is clear, and that is that we are not successful unless the person with the least opportunity also has a chance to be successful or whatever God or other and chooses for them to do, ordains for them to do. So um, I'm appreciative uh, of being here, um, and I want to talk a little bit about um, how we put those values into to action. Um, so Priorities USA actually started in 2011 as a super PAC uh, that supported President Obama. And in 2016, it was a super PAC that supported Hillary Clinton. Uh, so if we were um, 
a batter in a baseball game, we would have a really good average. Um, unfortunately, in politics, that's not the case. Um, and after 2016, we decided to pause and ask ourselves whether or not this was the best way for us to engage in the work of participating in civic life and frankly electing Democrats. Is this the best way for us to build and rebuild organizations that come into effect a year from an election, try to raise millions of dollars, spend all of it on television, in the election, and then restart again two years after that? And so we came to the conclusion that the answer to that was no. That, in fact, part of the reason why we weren't as successful as we should be is that that was the approach too many organizations and groups were taking. And so we decided to look rather at the structural deficiencies that we saw on the left. What were the things, structurally speaking, that were preventing us from being successful? And we ultimately settled on three things. First, we settled on the need to aggressively address a systemic and deplorable advance on voter suppression throughout the country. That over the last four years, 29 states have made it more, not less difficult to vote. And that often this gets presented as a voter ID, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, but that is the least offensive of some of the laws that have passed over uh, the last four years. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. The state of Indiana, anybody from Indiana here? All right. The state of Indiana passed a law that said, we're going to make government uh, work better when it comes to elections, and so we're going to consolidate precincts so that the precincts can be better run with more machines. But the law was written so that the only precincts that actually met the requirements of the state to be consolidated were plurality black precincts in Indianapolis and majority black precincts in Gary, Indiana. Fewer precincts no more money for additional machines, no increase in pay for election day workers. And in fact, in Indianapolis, they wanted to take all the early vote locations that were in the African-American community and make one super location that was actually the farthest from the three largest precincts where African-Americans voted. In the state of Florida, the Secretary of State unilaterally decided that public colleges and universities could not be early vote locations. Churches could be early vote locations. The American Legions could be early vote locations. The Elks Clubs, the Miami Shores Country Club could be an early vote location. But public colleges and universities could not be an early vote location. In Missouri, they passed a law that seemed benign. We're going to pass a signature match law. So we're going to make sure that when you sign in to vote, on election day that your signature matches the signature that's on your ID, which sounds like a great idea unless you're an older voter whose signature might start looking a little bit different from when you got your ID and haven't updated it because you no longer drive. It might make sense unless you are a trans voter whose gender on your ID doesn't match the way you look and therefore you're denied the right to vote. In New Hampshire, they passed a law. By the way, you'll notice these aren't all southern states, right? The old mythology around just the south doing this. In New Hampshire, they passed a law that said you could not vote, register to vote if you lived in temporary housing. What qualified as temporary housing? Well, there was only one thing that qualified as temporary housing. College dorms. <laughs> 
They also passed a law that eliminated same-day registration in the state on college campuses. Now, keep in mind, every other location could have same-day registration except those that are located on college campuses. And to make matters even better, they passed a law that said any state agent could knock on the door of any new registered voter to prove whether or not you were domiciled there and they could do it unannounced. And if, if you ended up being in one of these places, if you did not meet their criteria, then you would immediately lose any public aid. What counts as public aid? Student loans provided by the state, state-funded grants. If you were a research assistant and you were receiving money as part of a state-funded research project, you immediately lost that grant. And by the way, there was no recourse. You could not file a provisional ballot on election day. These are three out of many, many, many pernicious attempts to limit and make more difficult the right to vote under the guise of good government, under the guise of voter fraud, of which there has been almost none over the course of the last decade. So we decided that we would engage in the work of taking states to court. Uh, we have taken nine states to court so far. Uh, we have taken Florida, Indiana, Iowa, I never should list because I know I'm going to forget one, Missouri, New Hampshire, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Virginia. I think I got them all right, and if not, forgive me. Uh, we've won nine cases. We've won with Bush judges. We've won with Clinton judges. We've won with Obama judges. We've won with Bush one judges. Um, the case is clear, and in most cases we win. The problem is litigation is the least efficient way for us and most expensive way, frankly, for us to do it. And so last month we announced that uh, two of our donors have committed $45 million over three years for us to sue a dozen states and support three ballot measures to enact automatic voter registration around the country. So that was one area that we decided to focus on. The second, a little bit less exciting area we decided to focus on was addressing what was clearly systemic problems around polling. I don't know if you remember uh, 2016. Um, uh, most of the polling suggested that one side was going to win and one side was not, and something different happened. I, I try not to speak too specifically about it because the PTSD is slowly starting to recede. Um, and you have to laugh because there's really only one other option when talking about 2016. Um, but clearly, there were a lot of problems. There were a lot of things missing the mark. And it wasn't just that it was a research problem, it also unearthed other systemic faults within the Democratic Party, mistakes that we were making based on bad research. Here were the two biggest takeaways from that project. Uh, one, there is an enormous response bias when it comes to most polling, and most of that response bias happens among uh, white voters who um, did not graduate from college. They are less likely to participate in polls, and when they participate in polls, they're much less likely to tell you who they're going to vote for. The second problem was that as these polls were being done, there was careful analysis being paid to age and gender, other sets of demography, but that when it came to college or education attainment, those types of 
uh, that type of data wasn't available on the voter file. And so it was self-described. Someone would describe their level of attainment, and pollsters and others would make a best-case guess, a best-case assessment about what the balance of non-college and college-educated voters would be. And in almost every case, they were wrong that almost every pollster, private and public, was overestimating the number of college-educated voters and underestimating the number of non-college voters. And it mattered more in 16 than it mattered in 2012 and 2008 because education level was more determinative of how someone was going to vote in 2016 than in almost any election beforehand. The gap between non-college and college-educated white voters for President Obama was six points, six point difference. The difference in 2016 was 25 points. So if you think about this, if the first thing is you have a response bias, less people are participating, and then if they are, less people are telling you who they're gonna vote for, and you're also getting the percentages wrong of people who you are speaking to to begin with, it's very easy to see why you would have these changes take place. And so we have, over the last two and a half years, done about 2.9 million survey, uh, have 2.9 million survey respondents to address some of these systemic flaws as we prepared for 2018 and as we move into 2020. The last area that I want to talk about so that we leave most of the time for, for questions is, um, I want to think of a nice way to say it because we're in a, in a very nice home and everyone's dressed up. Um, uh, the ineptness of the Democratic Party when it comes to digital communication. <laughs> and the ineptness of strategic decision making when it comes to spending um, to the point of diminishing return and beyond um, hundreds of millions of dollars on television to the exclusion of other forms of communication. Now what I don't want you to hear is we should not be advertising on TV. Some people still watch TV, millions of people watch TV. Um, but the way we communicate and the way we process information is changing. How many of you have cell phones? How many of you use your cell phones for things that don't include making a phone call? How many of you, in fact, use your cell phone the least for making phone calls? I, I try. Right? Let me give you an example of what happened today. I mentioned this to Karen earlier. I was in a meeting with someone who works in the music industry, and we were talking about concerts. We were talking about, what my, my first concert was a Guns N' Roses concert. Uh, and this person is very active in the music industry and we were talking about the fact that Fleetwood Mac was in, in uh, DC last night and I guess Elton John was in New York last night. And, and you know, we finished the meeting and, and everything is great and he's a great person and I get into my car and I open up Facebook and guess what the first, guess what the first promotive thing on Facebook was? Click here to learn what concerts are in your neighborhood tonight. Think about that for a second. Now, let me also be clear. My microphone is off in the Facebook app. Now, my microphone is on in other things, right? But my microphone is off on the Facebook app. So the way people are communicating and the way companies are communicating is a lot different than it was in the 90s. It's a lot different than it was two years ago. And the Democratic Party was... Um, uh, to be generous behind the curve. I'll give you uh, one more quick example. In 2016, if you look at the top 20 congressional races in 2016, Republicans spent 28 cents on every dollar online talking to voters. Democrats spent four cents. 
online talking to voters. Think about that for a second. By the way, we're a party that over relies on young people, right? Younger people make up a bigger proportion of our, of our electorate. And yet we're spending four cents compared to 28 cents from the other side. Think about that. So I want to talk a little bit about what we, uh, what we did to try to solve that problem. Our, our, goal, uh, our goal was to do two things. One, we wanted to move market share. We wanted to encourage, incentivize, embarrass, shame, cheer on a movement in the market so that more progressive organizations, liberal organizations, democratic organizations were actually talking to people where they get news and information. And so we went to the five biggest spenders in the Democratic Party and we said to them, we will make you a deal. We will match you dollar for dollar. Every dollar you spend online talking to a voter about an issue, we will match you and we'll, we'll spend a dollar. And we will do all of your targeting, all of your modeling, all of your testing, and all of your creative for free. All you have to do is agree that you're going to spend at least 20%. So we weren't up to 30 yet. Just 20% and we'll match you dollar for dollar. As a result of that, we built a 40-person creative ad agency inside of Priorities. We hired people away from ESPN and BET and The Onion and ClickHole and Upworthy. We hired two Emmy Award-winning producers from PBS, all working for us on a creative team. So when you come into our political organization, you're much more likely to run into a videographer, a script writer, a amateur comedian uh, than you are to run into somebody like me who's been in politics for a long time. Right? The second thing we did is we brought our buying to a, a not only a part of our buying in-house, but we stopped paying commissions. We said we're going to stop paying 7, 8, 12% commissions to advertising firms. We're going to pay a retainer so that we're incentivizing decision making that is based on what is best for us to win or lose, not based on what is going to produce the most money for the political consultant. And we ended up directly spending four, almost $42.5 million on 64 races, Senate, House, Governor's races. Um, we generated about 2.3 billion impressions online over about a six-month period. And not just about candidates. We talked to people about the health care repeal. We talked to people about the tax uh, bill. Uh, we engaged in races up and down the ballot. Spending the money was important. The more important thing was, did we, did we get others to follow suit? And so we actually ended up coordinating an additional $68 million from the Senate Majority PAC, House Majority PAC, the League of Conservation Voters for Our Future, Patients for Affordable Drugs, the Environmental Defense Fund, Equality PAC, Planned Parenthood, and Citizens United. For the first time, all of the left was actually coordinating, which is something that sometimes we're not as good with. Um, not only that, but we launched a training program so that we could teach people what a buy sheet was. How do you know digital is working? How do you develop creative? Um, and we provided creative services even when it wasn't our program. Um, as a way, again, to incentivize and motivate people to make changes. You can keep going. I'm going I'm I'm to do some skipping. I hope you don't mind. So I want to talk a little bit about, there's an election. So this is what happens. You have an election, and then the next day, you all are inundated with people that want you to give money for the next election. Um, 
and then two years later there's another one. Um, and we have spent the last two years, I mentioned we've done almost three million interviews uh, developing a perspective on this election. This is not that uh, enlightening or interesting um, because it basically tells you what most of you need to know. And that is that most of our electoral map is pretty set in stone and that the election for president of the United States really exists in somewhere between six and nine states. And you don't want to live in any of those states in September and October of next year. This is where we have the election if it were held today based on our research. Um, now, let me, let me explain to you what you're seeing and what you're not seeing. Um, what we are not projecting in this are huge surges in turnout, which we expect. Um, we are looking at an electorate that's marginally more optimistic than uh, what we had in 2016. Um, and the reason why there are 10 electoral votes in this column is because in Wisconsin, our model literally came out to a difference of 160 votes. Now, that's, let, let me again be clear. This is not a projection of what will happen two years from now. This is based on the best available data that we have today. And using a relatively conservative view, because we think after the last election, it's important to use a conservative view of how the election is going to turn out. This is what it would be. The other thing to note is relatively small differences in the electorate make huge differences in the electoral college. Let me show you how. This is the electoral, this one looks better if you're a Democrat, okay? So we go from 269 to 333, 334 electoral votes with just two changes. One, we change our performance with white voters by two points. So we're not talking huge margins. And we increase turnout among African Americans and Latino voters by three points. By the way, that would put us to what the margin was among African American and Latino voters in 2012. So we're not talking about huge changes in the electorate. We're talking about relatively small changes can lead to huge changes in the electoral college. Now it can also work conversely, but I refuse to show uh, that chart. So we're gonna focus on this one as an example of, of how it can move. So I'm not sure why this looks like this, but uh, so let me talk about our core states. Our core states are states that were core states and have been core states and are going to be core states. They are Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, New Hampshire, and Nevada. These are literally the six closest states. We're not guessing. We're not. These are literally the six closest states in our research. Then we have three additional expansion states that are literally the three next closest states. They are Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia. I would also point out that we expect that all three of those states will have Senate races uh, going into next year. Uh, then we have a Democratic watch list, Minnesota, Virginia, Colorado. These are states we should win. They are states that we've done reasonably consistently well at. They are states where we saw significant growth from 2016 to 2018, but we're not going to take anything for granted. And so we poll and we research and we monitor these states. It is important that we win them. And then we have Republican watch states, Iowa, Ohio, and Texas. Um, these are states that, um, let, me, let me put it a different way. If you, see, if you ever see a headline next year that says Priorities USA is spending money in Colorado, your response should be, this election is closer than they anticipated. If you see a headline that see, says 
priorities of spending money in Ohio or Texas, your response should be, maybe this election is going a little bit better than they anticipated. And we can talk during, if you have questions about why these states, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that. And keep going. I'm not sure why all these are off, uh, but they are. Um, so you can see here the vote differential in, in Wisconsin was, was literally 179 votes in our projection. Right? Go to the next one. We're going we're gonna to move fast through. You can keep going. Here's, here's the, Wisconsin's close. Florida's close. We're going to move forward. All right. I want to talk about what the other side is doing. So today, if you are a Venezuelan in South Florida, it is very likely that Donald Trump is actually delivering ads to you online. Now, the Venezuelan community in South Florida is a relatively small community. But they're advertising, um, and they are talking about the Trump administration's position in Venezuela, which is obviously topical for the moment. And they're talking about what they say is the most extreme liberal democratic position, which is essentially to allow them to stay in power. Um, this is happening t today, almost two years before the election. Uh, the Trump campaign, aided and abetted by other right-wing organizations, um, are spending significant resources. Since 2018, they've spent $15 million just online, talking to voters, doing machine learning about uh, likely voters, and raising money. So this is already happening going into this year. So our plan, yep, you can see the, no, it's okay. So our plan is pretty simple and straightforward when it comes to the election. Our, our job is not to give them a head start. Our job is not to repeat the mistakes of the past, where we start engaging voters, frankly, waiting until we have a nominee, uh, or waiting uh, until the fall when voters start to engage. Our job is to identify the voters in each of these states that are going to make the difference in winning and losing and starting to talk to them now starting to engage with them now online. What does that look like? Well, if you live in Florida and you are in a, uh, in a community that's on the west coast of Florida, uh, and in the west coast of Florida right now, the red tide is a really big issue. I don't know, has anybody been following this issue, right? These huge algae plumes, they destroy the landscape. Um, literally thousands and thousands of dead fish washing up on people's property, a terrible smell, horrible for tourism, especially in a state that relies on tourism dollars. Um, so it may mean that we are talking to the 40,000 voters in the Senate district in Tampa that care about the red tide. And that in their Facebook feed tomorrow, they might see an article from the Tampa Tribune, not from us, from the Tampa Tribune that says the red tide is a direct result of a conservative policy basically to set environmental regulation and environmental protection on the back burner. Three days later, they might see a clip from their local ABC station. That's a 30-second clip, again, not from us, from the ABC station that talks about the red tide, why we have it, what the problems are, um, that happen to lay the blame where, frankly, the blame is rightly laid, which is the Republican administration in Florida and the Republican administration in uh, in DC. If you live in Wisconsin, you might see a video uh, from your local news that says that healthcare premiums in Waukesha have increased by 25%. 
Uh, you might see something about cuts in local school funding. If you uh, live in uh, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you might hear about job cuts at local plants and making clear that these, plant, these closings are happening despite the promises of an administration that said we would never lose a manufacturing job again as long as Donald Trump was president. I would point that out because today GM is closing a plant in Ohio. Right? I would point that out because everybody remember the brouhaha over the carrier plant in Indiana? Um, which has now laid off most of the workers that were supposed to be protected with a huge tax giveaway to carrier uh, from the state of Indiana. So our job is to engage these voters, whether they are voters that are ticket switchers, meaning they voted for Romney and then they voted for Clinton and they're open to voting for a Democrat again, or a voter that voted for Donald Trump and is now willing to vote Democrat. And just in case you think those people don't exist, how could that happen? Yeah. Why would that? Let me just, let's just keep Wisconsin in mind. Within the span of six years, Wisconsin elected Tammy Baldwin, Scott Walker, and Donald Trump. You can't do that simply because turnout on one side was better or worse. You do that because there are people that voted for Donald Trump and Tammy Baldwin. So there are people that still change. It's a relatively small number, but let me remind you, we lost by 75,000 votes in three states. So it doesn't take that many of these switchers in order, to make, in order to make a difference. We will start this program in July. Oh, sorry, well, we'll start the, the advertising in, in July. Um, we will start reaching out to them in June. It will include a digital component. It will include in-person, on-the-ground organizing. It will include press operations in all six of these states all designed to build an infrastructure that can support whoever the eventual nominee is. Because uh, we're going to have a long, sometimes messy, occasionally loud primary. And our job is to make sure that we're not losing the focus from what our real mission is, which is ultimately to win the general election. We're not just going to focus on these persuadable voters. We're also going to focus on uh, those voters that did not participate, that were drop-off Democrats. And I want to just spend and I'm going to close here a couple of minutes on who these folks are and why, um, why they didn't vote in 16, even though they have a strong disdain for Donald Trump and, and the trap that some Democrats can fall into. So our, we did a lot of work in the, state, uh, in the uh, Senate special election in Alabama uh, supporting Doug Jones. And j just as a reminder, um, he was running against a pedophile and almost lost. Okay. Um, the other reminder is that Donald Trump's approval rating among black voters is 4%. And part of our success, in fact, most of our success was going to be whether or not we could turn out black voters in Alabama in a special election two weeks before Christmas for a person that most of them had never heard of. So you might ask, how do you do that? Well, a lot of the initial reaction is, well, you just tell them how terrible Donald Trump is. We're going to send him a message. Send Donald Trump a message. Elect Doug Jones. Donald Trump is terrible. Donald Trump's a racist. Donald Trump's a jerk. Donald Trump tweets mean things. Donald Trump's a horrible person. The second thing we could do is we could tell them Roy Cooper is a pretty terrible person. Roy Cooper hangs out with the Klan. Roy Cooper is engaged in pedophilia and abusing young girls. Seems like a pretty compelling argument. 
would be for, would be for me. But when we did the creative, when we tested it, both of those arguments fell completely fat, flat. In fact, in fact, the advertising, and we, we showed them a host of things, the advertising that mentioned Donald Trump and focused on Donald Trump actually had the opposite effect. It actually, we had more people say they were less likely to vote as a result of seeing the ad. Why, why would that be? Why would it be, if he has a 4% approval rating, why would it be that talking about him would actually decrease interest in the election? Imagine, you know, and, and you don't have to imagine, I can tell you the results of the focus group, um, you know, of non-participants in 2016. If you're, if, as a young black man or black woman, your political awareness happened under Barack Obama. And then, the country's reaction to the first African-American president is to elect Donald Trump. Also recognize most young people think politics is full of it. That it's not the way to make change. That it's not the way to engage. That's changing in large part th thanks to the president we have. But for them, the election of Donald Trump was the affirmation that the system is rigged against them. That it doesn't work. That their lives don't appreciably change regardless of who is in power. And so the idea that our response to that would be to literally continually shove in their, play, in their face the walking, talking, lying embodiment of their belief that the system is rigged against them, actually, it makes a lot of sense why they would respond negatively. So despite the fact that we're a PAC, and PACs have reputations of being negative, 70% of our advertising targeting African-American voters in Alabama was actually positive. 95% of our advertising in 2018 targeting black and Latino voters did not mention Donald Trump at all. Most of it spent time actually talking about the future, talking about why politics was important if you care about economic opportunity or criminal justice reform or educational attainment, why, why politics is the reason. Not simply that the other side is bad, therefore vote for the person that is less bad. And so part of the work that we do is not just we're going to put up an ad and listen to your conversations on Facebook and deliver something to you. Part of it is about understanding why the country is reacting the way they are. The other thing is, um, and we, we've, we've done this quite a bit, you, you will rarely hear us talk about Donald Trump's temperament or call Donald Trump a name. You will rarely, at least not in public, you will rarely hear us talk about racism for racism's sake or homophobia for, not because it's not important. I, I, I am married to a gay man. I would like to stay married to a gay man. It's pretty important to me. The reason is because the country has decided on those issues. You understand that? The country either, a voter believes Donald Trump has the temperament to be president or they don't believe it. Most voters have come to a definitive conclusion about whether or not they believe Donald Trump is homophobic or sexist or racist, or that they aren't. We are not going to convince somebody differently at this point in time. What we can do is explain why Donald Trump is bad for them. What we can do is explain why his temperament and racism and homophobia and sexism and trade policy um, is bad for them. We can, we can connect the dots on the, the carrier plant, on the GM plant. We can connect the dots on the economic anxiety. By the way, they still feel. Two-thirds of respondents in our poll believe their wages will not keep up with the cost of living. 70% of respondents in our poll believe their kids are going to be worse off than they are. 
Our job is to make that connection for them. So I've talked a long time, so I'm going to stop. But that is our primary focus, is how do we engage, how do we communicate with people across line, how do we stop trying to turn the Democratic Party into a coalition of the aggrieved, where we each come with our own individual issue and try to convince everybody else that's the most important thing. My issue is more important than yours. I'm more important than you. This should be the first thing. And how do we start talking across demography with a common message that every person, every child, every woman, every man, every adult, every African-American, every Latino, every white person, everyone deserves a shot. And the better we are at doing that, using technology, but also just using some plain old common sense, the better off we're going to be. So with that, why don't I stop? <laughs> I've also been talking all day, and I'm so tired of hearing my own voice. So I, <laughs> yes. Oh, um, first of all, thank you for what you do. I, this is the first day I felt a little better in two years. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> I have 50 questions, but I'll, I'll go to two. In your list of partners, I didn't see National Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Are you in touch? Are they responsive? That's number one. Number two, now that Facebook has been put on notice, is it going to change the way that they operated and got yeah. through them? So the answer to the first question is we have some legal limitations on how much we coordinate with the Democratic Party uh, because we're an independent group that um, is not a federal committee. So we are not permitted to coordinate with them on all of our activities. Um, we're very public about our activities. Um, this slideshow with the correct formatting has been shown depressed. Part of the reason we do that is to make clear to the other side what we're working on so we're not duplicating efforts. Um, uh, however, um, there is a, a, um, a joint project called the Data Trust, which I won't bore you with now that we're collaborating on. So, in the few instances where we are allowed to collaborate, we do, but we're somewhat limited. Um, is Facebook going to change? Um, Facebook is going to change um, when the markets and when the Congress require them to change. Um, they, you know, there was an announcement today that Mark Zuckerberg was reorienting the company to focus on privacy, that they would um, ha give you the option of removing posts over a longer period of time, and your profile was going to be available to a smaller number of people. Um, I may believe it when I see it um, on this front. Um, so I, I think the, I don't, the answer is I don't know. Uh, but I know that generally speaking, the market and regulation are the two things that are going to be responded to. And there's an open question. The other challenge on Facebook's side is Facebook is aging. We, we were having this conversation. Young people in America are signing up for Facebook at a much lower rate, frankly, than older folks. Um, they're going to Instagram, Snapchat. And by the way, two years from now, we'll be talking about something else. So part of this is about we want to learn lessons from 16 and 18. We don't want to overlearn lessons. That this, this work is changing rapidly, and our job is to stay on top of trends and on best practices so that we're not just fighting the fight from 2016, we're actually innovating uh, for the next time. And, and the most important thing that we can do is occasionally be wrong about something. Because that means we're, we're, we're trying new things, we're occasionally risking, 
we are willing to um, think outside of the box on how we're communicating. Otherwise, we're stuck in the same trap of put an ad on YouTube for 30 seconds that looks like your TV ad, buy a banner ad six days before the election, tell people to make a plan with a graphic, show a pithy, funny, entertaining video that gets shared 20,000 times or a million times but doesn't actually persuade anybody to take action. Um, so our job is to make sure we're, we're continually innovating on this front. And I'll keep, you can tell I worked in the Senate because I talked for a long time, but I'll keep my answers short, I promise. Um, First of all, that was an amazing uh, presentation, so thank you so much for that and for all that you do. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned economic anxiety. What do you think, if you could project now, what are going to be the top issues? Because certainly in 2018, it seemed that healthcare yep. was number one. Yeah, the, you know, the 18 election was, was interesting for a couple of reasons, but the most, I think the most interesting thing was and frankly disappointing thing was the disconnect between what was happening on the ground and what campaigns were talking about and spending ad money on compared to what all of us see on MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN. Because most, most campaigns were talking about healthcare. They were not talking about Russia, Mueller, Stormy, Avenatti, not to minimize the importance of any of those things, um, but there was a whole conversation happening in campaigns that was fundamentally different than, the can than what was being talked about on Pick Your MSNBC show, CNN show. And I don't anticipate that's going to change anytime soon. Um, and it wasn't just Democrats, it was Republicans. Think about this, Dana Rohrabacher, um, who I would not call the most balanced member of the Republican Party, was advertising on the fact that he was in favor of protecting pre-existing conditions. After voting 50 times to eliminate protections for pre-existing conditions, Josh Hawley in Missouri was literally suing the United States of America to eliminate protections on pre-existing conditions while running an ad featuring his child who he said had a pre-existing condition and how he would never want to take that protection away from her. I, I, I think healthcare is going to continue to be an issue. This is, this is not going away. Um, it's not going away. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge issue. I do think, and I'm going to describe it as wages, but I think people process it differently than just wages. Um, we like to think healthcare, wages, education, Medicare, these are all buckets. That is not how most people process what's happening in their lives. To them, healthcare is an economic issue. Education is an economic issue. Um, so I think these economic bread and butter day-to-day -day issues are going to be what separates the gettable former Trump voters and moves them in our direction. I also think, frankly, those are a lot of the same issues, perhaps with a couple of others like criminal justice reform, that are also going to bring these Democrats that laid off in 2016 back to us. I don't believe it will be what, I, what we hear about on the television. Immigration, uh, immigration is complicated. Um, uh, I think it will bring out voters on both sides. Uh, I actually believe that we, we actually benefited from the immigration debate in 2018, which I think is a minority opinion uh, on this front. Um, but the reality is the Republicans went so over the top with the policy around children and families that it turned a lot of people, mostly women, um, off. 
Um, and so a lot of it will depend on their, their response. Yep. Um, Quick, I happen to be marketing. So one thing that I noticed on your slides is we find that for certain demographic and psychographic segments, it's really hard to reach it with paid media of any kind, online or off, especially if they've got ad blockers which skew very young. Yep. So for a lot of our clients, we've been uh, overweighting earned media, social earned media, yep. as well as digital PR, that's all that old sure. market. I wonder sort of how you're modeling the earned media side and how you're treating that differently, because obviously you have great creative teams you can take advantage of the Yes. And by the way, a lot on the politics side, a lot of the reason why they disengage from the advertising is also because a lot of political advertising is crap. Right. How many times can we see the same image of the very studious candidate in a hard hat walking through a plant, nodding vociferously and encouragingly at a person that's talking to them? Right? A lot of the stuff that we do, you would think doesn't have much production value at all, and it's intentionally so. A lot of our stuff looks like handheld, like the person's just holding it, talking, having a conversation with, with the voter. And in some cases, they are, by the way. A lot of the work that we do opens up the creative process to real people um, and allows them to actually, uh, we use some of their content and share it. Um, we, we do, uh, so all in, our, in these states, we will have actually social media and comms people on the ground in each of the states. That will actually be doing exactly what you're talking about. And when we do measurement of ads, we might measure it in terms of does it make somebody more or less favorable. We might measure it in terms of does it make somebody more or less likely to vote. We also might measure it on whether or not it's being shared, how much it's moving over the, because that's one way you get around the ad blockers, right, is you're getting people to share within their communities and in their context. Um, so it is a part of our program. I just didn't talk too much about it today. And happy to connect you with somebody if you're uh, looking to, uh, to volunteer uh, with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the issue that I'm very involved with is climate change yes. and the climate crisis. Uh, a new candidate has just come up, come out, Jay Inslee, and our Ed Markey, who was here last week. Yep. What I'm working on an initiative trying to show that climate change, the climate crisis, affects all the other aspects yes. that, that we're talking about. So it, is it a risk, though, for Jay Inslee to run? He's committed to run just on that issue. I think it's always a risk when you're only running on one issue. I would say that if it was about climate change or if it was about something else. So it's not a commentary on climate change. Um, and also, I should say that among our persuadable voters, climate change was the fourth issue. And amongst our turnout targets, climate change was the number three issue, which is, which is a considerable improvement over the course of time. Um, so it is something that we should be talking about. I think you actually said it. Um, correctly, we have to be able to communicate it in a way that explains how it affects people's lives and is not a theoretical discussion about what's happening to the oceans, right? Because it's, it's a lot of that's not going to break through. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm from a state that is, you could argue, going to be most affected uh, in the United States um, from a community that's going to be most affected. And we have a governor our previous governor actually banned the state from using the term climate change in state documents. And we have two senators that, that say they don't want to do anything to impact climate change. <laughs> so somehow we've got to get back on, on some messaging. I, I'm, I'm always hesitant about one issue campaigns 
as a, as a general rule. And that would be true if it was climate change or something else. Yes? Thank you for your presentation. To what extent is the tension between the ideologically driven part of the party and the pragmatists to use non-explosive words? Sure. How is that playing out? And are people reacting? In what way are they reacting? Do you see any golden day now? Um, I, I tend to be a little less concerned about, about some of this. Um, we live in a news cycle that is no longer 24 hours. We live in a news cycle that is 24 minutes, that is 140 characters, that is dominated by the administration and the response to the administration at a level that n no, one ha uh, no one has experienced. And I think it presents problems for the candidates in the primary who are all trying to break through. But I also think it gives us at least a little space to have some of these inter-party, inter-family fights. I think some of it is healthy, some of it is healthy, and is unavoidable. We went through a dramatic, traumatic, presidential election. So the idea that you would not have a debate inside the party around ideology and pragmatism or centrism and liberalism, I think is, it's an unreasonable expectation. It, it's going to happen. But I do see that every time we get to that place, there are course corrections along the way. Remember all the discussion about whether Nancy Pelosi was going to be the leader and the party was going to break apart and there were going to be all these renegade congressmen. Well, the reality is most of the new congresspeople voted for Nancy Pelosi, and most of the votes against her were people that had been in Congress before this last election, and it wasn't ideologically based. I mean, frankly, it was some of my best friends are white straight guys, but it was some white straight guys from the Midwest that were mostly leading the charge. Um, so, you know, I want to be cognizant that, that we want to make sure that it's kept in balance and that you can go too far. And that, frankly, I would like to spend a lot less time fighting each other and more time focused on the person who is an existential threat to the country and the world. Um, I also don't know that right now it's going to have a demonstrable impact on what happens next year. Um, I, I, maybe I'm optimistic, but I operate from an assumption that once we get further into this process and we have a nominee, um, everybody is going to understand what's at stake. And I think you see that even reflected in the polls. When you ask Democratic voters, what is the most important thing you want in a Democratic candidate for president? The number one answer by over 60% is beat Donald Trump. So I don't want to minimize it because it is an issue and, it, and it's, going to be it's going to be amplified by the press. But I just, I, I, think, I, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> wow. I think we're going to be okay. I didn't say which side I was on in the fight. You know, I'm on both sides. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. All right. we I'm getting the two questions left. So. Okay. Um, so there is a is a substantial divide um, among young people who are extremely politically engaged. Um, and young people who feel either alienated by the political system or uh, just 
like they feel like it doesn't have a significant impact on their life. Um, in the polling that you have done, yeah. I'm curious as to what sort of digital means are effective to this sort of like in-between demographic mm -hmm. um, and how you suggest that we all um, strive to engage that in-between because they, they are a substantial amount of the voting population at this point. Yeah, so um, two quick things, both in 30 seconds. Um, I think the first, f the first thing is we need to make sure we're not turning millennials into caricatures. First of all, a 35-year-old is a millennial. They are not going to have the same perspective needs, day-to-day -day encounters as someone that is 23 years old. It's, it's going to be different, and we need to treat them in a different way. And I, I, I worry a lot of times that, we, that a lot of Democratic campaigns have a caricature of a millennial as a white college woman or man that only cares about climate change and marriage equality and is from a middle-class family. And the reality is most millennials do not go to college. Right? A lot of millennials make $30,000 a year. Many millennials live in ex-urban areas and aren't a part of community organizing. Um, some of them have kids. Some of them are single parents. And so I think part of our job is to make sure that we're not caricature, we're not characterizing them in a way that is, that is artificial. In the same way that it's important that Democratic politicians don't go into a room of black voters and only talk about criminal justice reform, or go into a room of Latinx voters and only talk about immigration. That was longer than 30 seconds. Um, second is, the same economic issues that we were just talking about are actually the most important things we can do for that middle ground disaffected millennial voter. Because if you want to talk about a group that doesn't think they're going to make money, doesn't, I mean, they, they are more pessimistic in many ways about their economic success than their parents are. And we've got to speak directly to that and not just some of the issues that we have characterized as being millennial issues for a long time. Last one. Um, you said that you're going to start engaging voters. In, you said you were going to start engaging voters in June and July. We have such a divergence in, the, in our party just on health care. Yeah. Medicare for all to, uh, I mean, how do you engage them on what if we don't have a candidate? Sure. Well, first of all, part of our responsibility is to make sure we're connecting what's happening in their lives with Donald Trump, irrespective of who the nominee is. Okay? So I want to give you three quick facts. 50% of voters think the economy is strong. 66% of voters don't believe that their income is keeping up with the cost of living. 65% of voters don't believe their kids will have a better life than they will. So there's a disconnect there. You see the disconnect there? 50% think the economy is strong. Almost two-thirds believe wages are not keeping up. Okay? 70% of voters think Donald Trump cares most about the wealthy and well-connected. But 50% think the economy is strong. Why is that happening? It's not happening. Why is that happening? It's happening in part because 
all of the coverages on Stormy and Russia and Mueller, none of the conversation that's happening on the news is connecting what's happening in DC with what is happening in their lives. Why are we having all of these small uprisings as people are doing their taxes and realizing that it's not as good as they thought it was going to be? That the administration promised something else when the tax bill came and now all these deductions are gone. And now, all of a sudden, all of the promises are starting to come to light. Why is it that healthcare became a number one issue? And that literally overnight, I mean, let me, it wasn't that long ago, reporters were sitting on the set of CNN trying to log into the Obamacare website. Remember, everybody remember that, right? Some of us were like under our desk watching this go down. We have the advantage on healthcare now. We have Democrats proactively running on healthcare. What happened? What happened was a lot of people realized for the first time their healthcare could be taken away. For the first time, people realized that the protections for pre-existing conditions was Obamacare. For the first time, they realized that covering your child up to 26-year-old was Obamacare. They didn't know that. They thought it was something else. They thought Obamacare was giving a bunch of poor people, mostly black and brown, from their perspective, even though it's not true, free health care, and they were going to pay for it. They didn't realize that all these new protections were theirs. So we have to be explicit. We cannot assume. So our job over the course of that year is to make sure we're making that connection on Donald Trump that he is not doing anything to appreciably make their life better. We will talk about positive stuff. We will talk about every American deserving access to health care. We're going to let the candidate decide what that means. We're, we're not, we're not going to be giving them a 20-page policy proposal, so we have some flexibility in that regard. But our job in the short term is making sure we're telling the truth and being direct about the impact on Donald Trump. So with that, thank you all very much. I appreciate it. <laughs>